I invite you to open up to our scripture passage today. Now we're looking at 2 Corinthians 8, 1 to 15. 2 Corinthians 8, 1 to 15. Um, and as you're turning there, we are uh, doing a short series on the landmarks of our church. They're listed out there in the hallway, uh, worship, prayer, discipleship, and sharing. Uh, landmarks help orient us. A few weeks ago, I was coming from a meeting down in, in Salt Lake City, and I was getting on I-15 a different way than I normally did. And after doing a bunch of loops this way and that way, I was now on I-15, but I had this strange feeling that I was headed north instead of south. And so I did what I would normally do. I looked around for the mountains to help orient myself. But it was one of those days where the clouds were so low, you couldn't see any of the mountains. And it was this eerie feeling that I had no idea which way I was headed until I looked up at my uh, you know, rear view mirror and, and looked at the compass. Now, landmarks help orient us, right? You use landmarks every single day to help you navigate this valley, uh, navigate maybe in your office looking for certain things. Uh, landmarks are key. And, and in a similar way, God has given us landmarks for the Christian journey to make sure that we are headed in the right direction. And as I said, at, at JVC, we've described them as worship, prayer, discipleship, and sharing. These are really like spiritual diagnostic questions that you should be asking yourself regularly, right? Am I headed towards these things, right? Can I see these things towards the front? And if you can, you can have the assurance that even though you can't see the final destination, you're headed in the right direction. But if these are not things that you're participating in, worship, sharing, discipleship, and prayer, well, maybe you need to pause and take a moment to kind of reorient your life to make sure you're headed in that right direction. Now, I, two weeks ago, I think it was, A.T. Uh, talked about sharing as serving in the church, right? All the various ways we can serve by being part of the body of Christ. Uh, this week, I want to look at another aspect of sharing, which is sharing our financial resources. And so with that, let's read the passage, 2 Corinthians 8, 1 to 15. And now, brothers and sisters, we want you to know about the grace God has given the Macedonian churches. In the midst of a very severe trial, their overflowing joy and their extreme poverty welled up in rich generosity. For I testify that they gave as much as they were able and even beyond their ability. Entirely on their own, they urgently pleaded with us for the privilege of sharing in this service to the Lord's people. And they exceeded our expectations. They gave themselves first of all to the Lord and then by the will of God also to us. So we urged Titus, just as he had earlier made a beginning, to bring also to completion this act of grace on your part. But since you excel in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in complete earnestness, and in the love we have kindled in you, see that you also excel in this grace of giving. I'm not commanding you, but I want to test the sincerity of your love by comparing it with the earnestness of others. For you know that the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that through his poverty you might become rich. And here's my judgment about what is best for you in this matter. Last year, you were the first, not only to give, but also to have the desire to do so. Now finish the work, 
so that your eager willingness to do it may be matched by your completion of it, according to your means. For if the willingness is there, the gift is acceptable according to, one what ha according to what one has, not according to what one does not have. Our desire is not that others might be relieved by while, while you are hard-pressed, but that there might be equality. At the present time, your plenty will supply what they need, so that in turn, their plenty will supply what you need. The goal is equality. As it is written, the one who has gathered much did not have too much, and the one who gathered little did not have too little. And this is God's word. Let's pray. Our Father, we ask that you would speak to us. Lord, as we look at this topic, uh, that is a, a, a sensitive subject. So many of us maybe have bad experiences or been in, in churches or groups um, where there was a undue pressure to give. Uh, Lord, help us to look at this topic with fresh eyes to see the beauty in it, the beauty of generosity, and to see really the generosity of you that when we are filled with you, um, grace overflows in us to others. And so we pray all these things in Christ's name. Amen. Have any of you ever seen electricity? Have you ever seen electricity? Now, I think technically the answer is no. <laughs> My understanding is electricity is this phenomenon kind of like gravity, that you cannot see it itself, but what you can do is observe its effects on other things. So when you flip the switch and electricity flows through that light bulb, what you're observing is the reaction of that, how that electricity affects the filament of the bulb, and it results in light shining out and filling the room. It would be really nice sometimes if you could see electricity, right? Like if you're maybe replacing an outlet in your home and you think you've switched the breaker off before you open up the outlet and start unscrewing the wires, it'd be really nice to be able to see, you know, electricity kind of humming at the end of that wire so that you know whether or not it's safe to touch. We can't do that, so you've just got to test it out, right? Lick your finger and touch it, see what happens. Or use a voltage probe if you want to be boring with it. Our passage... I think is similar. Have any of you ever seen God's grace? I think in some ways it's like electricity. We don't see it per se, but what you do see are its effects on things. And one of the points in our passage shows that generous giving is grace made visible. Right? God's grace is like that electricity, but until you screw the bulb into the socket, it will not fill the room. And when we have generous giving, it is like plugging in that light bulb that fills a room with God's grace. And so that's what I want us to remember this morning. Your giving is grace made visible. Your giving is grace made visible. Now, I know it can be awkward uh, to have a sermon on giving, especially if you're you're new to the church, and I'll just say this is the first time that I've preached on this topic in almost nine years here. So if you're new, consider yourself lucky. Some people had to wait nine years for this sermon. <laughs> and also, I don't know what anyone in the church gives, so it's not like I'm thinking of any particular person. I have no idea what any one of you give. But with that, let's jump in and look at three things. First, we're going to look at an example of giving. Second, the foundation of giving. And third, the principle of giving. So an example of giving. 
right when Christianity started, the church in Jerusalem was, it was the hub of Christianity. It was ground zero, but soon that church fell on hard times. And as Paul traveled throughout the Eastern Mediterranean region, he would often give the church he was visiting updates on some of the other churches that he had visited. And so he told people about the church in Jerusalem and, and the struggles that she was having. And, and as he told them, he, he encouraged them to give money. And it worked well because they didn't have Venmo back then. They had to actually physically carry the money. And so Paul, as he was traveling, would collect money or send someone else like Titus to collect the money. And it would make its way back to the church in Jerusalem to help them out. And in verse 10, we learned that the Corinthians were very eager to help help out this church in Jerusalem. But for some reason, over the course of the next year, that enthusiasm waned and they seemed to have stopped that giving. And so Paul, as he's writing to them, he tells them about the churches in Macedonia, which are likely those churches in Philippi, Thessalonica, and Berea, churches you can read about elsewhere in the New Testament. And what is striking about this example is we know that these churches were materially poor. They were much poorer than the church in Corinth. And also, they too were facing persecution for being Christians. Many of them were brand new believers, and, and the Romans treated Christianity with skepticism. And so some of them found themselves in jail. Some of them may have lost their jobs. There were all kinds of issues for these brand new Christians who now they were following Jesus, and life got harder with them. And yet, the joy that they gained in following Jesus outweighed that new suffering that they gained in following Jesus. And I think that is such a great reminder for all of us, whether you're a new Christian or not, that often following Jesus will not necessarily make your life easier. Oftentimes it'll actually add new burdens to your life and difficulties. But what it does is it plugs you into that grace that far outshines and outweighs that new suffering. And so what you realize is that though I am suffering in new ways, God's grace is deeper still, and I'm thankful to be able to experience that. And that is exactly what happened in these Macedonian churches. Verse two, their overflowing joy and extreme poverty welled up into rich generosity. Now today, what are the normal ingredients for generosity? Well, the key one is usually extra money, right? You get a big bonus at work or a commission or a pay raise. You get a large gift from a family member and you say, well, we wanna give some of it away. And so what is so striking about this passage is that the ingredients for the rich generosity of the Macedonian churches is overflowing joy and not an excess of money, but actually a lack of money. A literal, literal translation of, of those words there could be something like down to the depths poverty. Now, down to the depths poverty to me sounds like a great reason why you don't have to give anything. But Paul lists that as one of the ingredients that creates this chemical reaction that bubbles up into rich generosity. And Paul wasn't gonna ask those churches to contribute. He knew how little they had. He, he didn't wanna ask them. And, and so it says at the end of verse three, entirely on their own. They didn't, they weren't asked. They brought the subject up themselves. They took the initiative. They urgently pleaded with us for the privilege of sharing in this service to the Lord's people. If anything, these believers could have pleaded poverty, right? We would love to give, we don't have anything. 
But instead of pleading their poverty, they pled to be able to share in the grace of giving. And they didn't just give a token amount. They gave as much as they were able, Paul writes. Actually, then he goes on to say, no, they gave beyond their ability. This wasn't them deciding, hey, you know what, we're going to downgrade our vacation this year so that we can give more. It was them for deciding to forego butter and salt just to eat bread and water. And why are they pleading to give richly? Well, the first clue comes in verse 4, where it says they wanted the privilege of sharing in this service. And the word service here is the same Greek word used elsewhere for ministry. And the word privilege in that sentence is the same Greek word often translated as grace. In fact, this word grace, charis, shows up 10 times in chapter 8 in the first half of chapter 9 where Paul is talking about giving. And if you read through that, what you see is that Paul shows that giving, generosity, is the ministry of making grace visible. Generosity is like screwing in a light bulb and into the socket and filling a room with grace. Do you realize that you can participate in a ministry of making grace visible? Is that your approach to generosity, to giving? Like, like if we really believe that is what our giving does, it doesn't matter how much it is. God doesn't care about that, but, but it, you having a generous spirit is making grace visible for other people in their life and in their suffering and when they're having a hard time. Yet, what are often our motivations to give? It's not because we want to make grace visible. It's right, well, I want the tax write-off, or I feel pressure to give. Or we try to figure out, what's the, you know, I feel like I should give something, but I don't want to give too much, but I don't want to seem stingy. So, you know, what can I do? What can I balance? Maybe we think God's more likely to answer our prayers if we give to his work. And we have all kinds of excuses for not giving, right? Well, I don't have that much. Or I'll start giving once I get the better job. Or we've had too many expenses this month, and I don't think I can give. What a striking example the Macedonians are. Right, who could claim every single one of those excuses, and yet they are begging Paul, let us participate in sharing of our resources. Are you pleading to find more ways to be generous with what you have? Or are you pleading a bunch of reasons why you can't be generous right now? The Macedonian churches had this perspective on giving that is so different from us. Please let us give. Please let us participate. We want to be part of it. We, we know that this is just pocket change, but we want to participate in it. And one of the reasons is in verse 5. They gave themselves first of all to the Lord, and then by the will of God also to us. Paul brings us to the heart of giving, that a generous heart starts with having a heart that is rooted in God. And when you have your heart in sync with God, you start to have a heart for all of his people. So that brings us to the second point, the foundation of giving. Today, the foundation of giving is often having excess money. We even see it in the language. When a wealthy family wants to start giving a lot away, what do they do? Create a foundation. The Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, the Bezos Family Foundation. But Paul shows that the foundation for Christian giving isn't having a lot of money, it's being rooted in a generous God. That if you want to learn how to be more generous in your life, how much you give yourself to God 
matters much more than how much you have in your bank account. Verse 9, for you know the grace, there's that key word again, of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that through his poverty you might become rich. Here again we see this connection between grace and giving. Christ, who had spent eternity past with all of the glory and privilege and, and ease of heaven, he never knew a day of suffering. He lived in a perfect world. Imagine the best place that you could live, right? And that is just a faint shadow of heaven. And that is what Christ, all he knew. And what did he do? He walked away from that to come down into this world, to be born to a lowly family in a lowly manger, to become poor and to experience the pain and suffering of this world. And he did that of his own free will because he wanted to. He went from having everything. It is way harder to make yourself poor after you've had it all, right? Because you know how good it was. But he went from having everything to Matthew 8, 20. Jesus replied, foxes have dens and birds have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. And how many of us have been willing to decrease our standard of living because we're committed to generosity? How many of us have saved less money or skipped a vacation, put less into retirement, because we're committed to that model that Christ has given us of giving up what he has so others can have more. Isn't that exactly what Christ did? In Christian generosity, it always does come at some cost, or else it's not true generosity. It was through Christ's poverty that we became rich. Now, we shouldn't just see Jesus then as an example of giving. But, but who are the people that he has made rich? Well, it's all of us. It's how the Macedonians, in their extreme poverty, they pleaded for the opportunity to give because though they had nothing monetarily, they knew they had everything in Christ. They knew that they had plenty of grace to give and that those coins was just a conduit to pass that grace on to a church who needed it. If the key resource for Christian generosity is grace more than dollars, every one of us is rich. Do you see yourself that way? That you have the riches of Christ in you, that he has emptied himself to fill you up. This ties into Paul's point in verse 8. I am not commanding you. Later he goes to say, giving should be done freely, voluntarily, not under compulsion, right? If, if you are, by a church or any organization, being compelled to give, that's not true generosity, right? That's just legalism or being pressured into it. Generosity comes from a, a free spirit. But then he says, I want to test the sincerity of your love by comparing it with the earnestness of others. Now, we can easily misread this verse. Think of Paul is doing something like a giving challenge, right? Like, well, look how much they give. Can you match it? Or you could think of something like, you know, a, a giving wall at many museums or some hospitals where there's, you know, all these names listed, etched in the marble or printed on the wall, right? Or here's the group that gave 1,000 to 5,000. Here's the 6,000 to 10,000 here. Here's the, you know, the founder circle of people that gave gifts of more than 50,000. But that is not what Paul is saying. What does he say gets you into the founder circle? It's not the size of your donation, but the sincerity of your love your joy, your spirit of generosity. 
And that multiplies whatever amount you give. Though the Macedonian church gave what is pocket change to us, and even probably the Corinthians, Paul says they are in the founder's circle because of the sincerity of their love is worth so much more than gold. Do you feel this, this, this free compulsion to be generous with what you have because you realize all I can give is only pocket change compared to what Christ has given me? And if you don't have that, well, what's the solution? It's not kind of beating yourself up or feeling guilty. It's meditating more on the generosity of Christ who became poor so that you could have the riches of his grace. And then this takes us to our third point, a principle of giving. This is where we'll get a lot more practical. So Paul, while he commends the Macedonians for giving beyond their means, he doesn't say this is required for every one of us. Verse 11, now finish the work so that your eager willingness to do it may be matched by your completion of it. And then he adds on that last little phrase, according to your means. He doesn't say that, well, you know, everyone write a check for $1,000, even if you only got $500 in your bank account, and trust that God will make up the difference. No. What are your means? What, that should be in relation to what you give. Again, what does Paul say makes for good generosity? Verse 11. For if the willingness is there, the gift is acceptable according to what one has, not according to what, does not, what he does not have. It's not saying... You need to drain yourself. What's the key part? The heart, your willingness, a generous spirit. Then he goes on to say, our desire is not that others might be relieved while you are hard-pressed, but there might be some equality. If we bring in the imagery of uh, chapter 12, 1 Corinthians 12, where Paul compares the church to a body with all its various parts. If some part of your body is hurting, Right? Whether it's your feet or your back or your wrists, your hands, your, your body sends resources to that part to help heal it. And, and Paul's point is your body, the healthy parts of your body don't make themselves sick in order to make another part healthy. Right? If, if your hand is hurting, you don't chop off your other hand to try to stick it on the hurting hand. Right? You're just compounding the problems. Are you giving? In a way, though, that helps raise up the weaker parts of Christ's body. So there can be some sense of equality. It's the same way. If, if your toe hurts, it has the attention of your entire body. If your back hurts, you're not going to say, I'm healthy, because there's a part of you that is not healthy. And we as Christ's body, and here I'm speaking of globally, when there are churches around the globe that are hurting, that are suffering, that have less than us. Is it not part of our duty, if they are members of our body, to help lift them up so that they can enjoy some of the riches of God's grace, so that they can do ministry, so they are not suffering as much? And then he, Paul goes on to say, and guess what? There's an ebb and flow to life. It is so easy to go from you know, hero to zero, to have a lot and then to lose it all. And when that happens, well, the way that God works is there'll be another church that is doing well, and they'll be there to support you. Right? God's blessing 
If God is blessing you in this point in your life, he is not doing that just so that you can have a good life. He is doing that so that you can bring relief to other Christians who are hurting. This is, I think, goes so against how we think of things as Americans, right? And there's, of course, certain nuance and caveats to this, but it struck me through this passage that God's means for caring for his people is not through savings accounts, but through his church. That is caring for those, that is looking what parts of the body are hurting and where can we direct resources to help lift them up. And why does God do this? Why doesn't he just give every church stability and no up and down? Because then you wouldn't be able to see those beautiful light bulbs of grace. You wouldn't have the wonderful example of the Macedonians whose extreme poverty welled up into rich generosity. And then at the end of our passage, Paul references Exodus. and quotes from it, where maybe you remember when I preached on it uh, probably about a year ago now. Uh, people went out to gather manna, this food that God was providing them from heaven while they're traveling through the wilderness. And some people go out. And some people probably gathered a little bit more manna than what God had told them to get. And we can imagine why. Well, it's always good to have a little extra. Just want to be prepared. There were other people, probably those of you who are stingy or good at saving, right? you would go out and gather the right amount of manna, but then you would only eat half of it because you say, well, we should save some for that day in case God doesn't bring any tomorrow. And yet, in the story, both groups, whether the people that had too much or the people that were stingy, were in for a surprise because all the manna that they had saved was spoiled. And God was teaching them to trust in his daily provision more than their own savings. And then the story ends with that verse that Paul quotes in our passage. The one who gathered much didn't have too much, and the one who gathered a little didn't have too little. In the end, it didn't matter if you worked really, really hard or were super stingy. What mattered was God's grace, and he made sure that every person had enough. And our passage shows that one of the ways in which God makes sure every person has enough is through the generosity of his church and people caring for one another. So I want to finish up with just a number of practical applications here. If you're a member of Jordan Valley Church, you should be regularly giving to this church. Now, our passage is specifically focused on supporting another church, but if we look later on and elsewhere in the New Testament, it becomes clear that God's people are to support their own local church. Uh, uh, Paul writes in 1 Timothy 5.17, elders, pastors who do their work well should be respected and paid well, especially those who work hard at both preaching and teaching. Local churches have a responsibility to support their pastors and the ministries of that church. Yeah, and and one of the things that we're going to be doing here is, if you remember a year ago when West came, almost a year ago, right? We were in this weird place where we kind of needed another pastor to continue to expand our ministry, but we couldn't fully support the salary of another pastor. And so West raised 80% of his money for that first year, and we contributed 20%. But then later this summer, uh, we'll start contributing 40% of his salary. Uh, and then the year after that, 60%, right? And that, the only way that will work is through that commitment of you all to help support your local ministers. 
And, and the thing is, I want to encourage you all because I feel very well cared for by this church. If anything, I want you to encourage, even, you know, I was thinking about it yesterday. We're, we've just moved into this new house. We're building a fence, doing a bunch of landscaping. And we've had so many people come out to help, right? Like, even if I don't ask for people to come help, people show up and they help us with the work, right? There is no church I would rather be at because of how well you guys care for me. I, I, I am so fortunate to be one of your pastors. And we want to extend that care to others. And we want Wes to know that care. How much should you give? You know, in the Old Testament, there was what's called the tithe, where you give 10% to God, and often most of it went to the work of the temple and the, and the workers there at the temple, and the priests. Now, likely, though, when you added up all those different tithes, it was probably a decent bit more than 10% all in all. But here, it seems that the, there's something that's changed in the New Testament. Paul doesn't give any indication saying, well, once you give your 10%, you're good, and I won't bother you anymore until next year's pledge drive. If anything, he's advocating for first a generosity that is rooted in Christ, right? And Christ certainly gave more than 10% of himself to us. That becomes the new standard, the generosity of Jesus. And he also, though, says, but you don't just make yourself poor so someone else can be rich. The heart is the most important thing when it comes to giving. Again, it's that idea of generosity, right? Generosity can't be mandated. The moment you mandate it, it's not generosity. So what should you give? Well, I think this means for so many of us who have good jobs or good retirement accounts, our attitude should often be, how can I give more? God has blessed me so much. How can I extend that blessing to others? And are you driven by a desire to make God's grace more visible in the world? Right? And that is an investment that will last far longer than what you've got in the bank or in Bitcoin. And how much should you give then? My guess is, probably for most of us, it's more than whatever you're giving now. If you're not giving anything, well, we're called to give. Start making a commitment. I'm going to give whatever it is, every paycheck. Take 20 bucks out, 50 bucks out, 1%, 2%. If you're giving maybe 7%, see, what would it look like if we wanted to give 10% of what we have away? Maybe we're giving 10% away. Say, so you know what? What would it look like if we gave 12%? Can we still pay our bills? Can we still have, there's nothing wrong with going on good vacations and enjoying that, but, but how can we extend that blessing? You give within your means, but a heart that is full of grace is often, is always looking for more ways to make that grace visible. I just did our taxes a few months back. I wasn't sure if I should share this or not, but it was encouraging that I found out last year we gave away about 15% of what we made. Right? And this is, I just, not to brag, and not, I just want to show that I'm not preaching anything that we are not working through ourselves, right? And we've grown in how much we give away over these last few years. And I can tell you, as that number has gone up, there is a joy in, one of the greatest joys from it is you get a freedom from money when you learn to give so much of it away, right? Money is so enticing. We always want more, and it always gets its tentacles around our heart. And getting that habit of forcing yourself to give more and more away, it gives you this joy that says, this is not my master. This is not what I'm living for. 
And God takes care of you. God has been so good to us, even though we're working to give more and more away. Where should you give? I think scripture implies that most of your giving should be in your local church, but it should extend beyond that. Our passage is focused on helping another church in a different region. This is why we do our missions giving. And again, you guys are so generous, and yet I know there's even more generosity that we could unlock. We're giving about $33,000 away this year from your pledges to other churches and ministries that don't have as much as we do. And a good chunk of that goes to all of our partners in Kenya who have so much less than we do. And what a beautiful picture of the body of Christ caring for one another when every month right, there's money that goes to support these pastors and their ministries. If you were here last fall after I just got back from that trip to Kenya and was just, it was during that our missions giving pledge time and was just struck at how hard do they work with how little they have. And, and one of the perennial questions that they struggle with is, how does a local church support its pastor when two-thirds of that church is unemployed, as is the case in so many of these churches in Kenya and much of Africa? Right? And it would be nice to get more of those people employed, but those are complex problems. And it struck me, one of the answers to that question, how does a local church support its pastors when two-thirds are unemployed? It's through the body of Christ. For those churches that have, I don't know what, 95% of us employed are going to help those churches that can't do as much. One of the answers is through God's people. Pastor Sam, Amos, Emmanuel, who Lord willing will be our intern coming out this fall. We're helping support him and his young family. They're all able to do ministry because of your generosity. So if you're not contributing to our missions giving, encourage you to do that. You just, every time you give, put a note on it, 50 bucks or whatever is for missions. You don't have to do it through us, although it makes it easier, but every one of us should be giving to some churches, some ministries outside of your local ones that are doing faithful ministry, but don't have the means to be able to support themselves. And then lastly, see your giving as a ministry. Here we are 2,000 years later, talking about these Macedonian churches whose extreme poverty mixed with Christian joy that resulted in generosity, rich generosity. And if we could know how much they gave, you know, it would be pennies today. Yet nothing to be impressed about, and yet we're talking about them. Why? Because their joy welled up into rich generosity, their heart that mattered. The Macedonians just had a little bit to give, but their, their giving was like a, a tiny LED, right? Have you ever actually looked at a, an LED? And not the whole ball, but just the little diode that actually admits the light. Right? They're super tiny. It's just a few millimeters by a few millimeters. Right? It looks insignificant, and yet what happens, you screw that thing into the socket, and it's enough from that little thing to fill a light with room, the, the room with light. And that's what God does to our giving. It's his grace made visible. Your even meager giving, if that's all you have, gets plugged into the power of God's grace and it can fill a room. It becomes a conduit for the beauty of God to be seen into this world. This is one of the roles of the church. The church's role is to make the grace of God visible. The church is we can't just talk about grace and 
and say, oh, grace is so good, without ever making that grace visible for the world to see, for others to see, for others to experience. Right? A church that just talks about grace with not making that grace visible is like walking into a room with 100 light sockets, but they're all empty. There's no bulbs in them. We must make that grace visible. And God has given us the responsibility to help make the beauty of his grace visible in a dark world. And to do it in ways that counteract how the rest of the world is going, right? By caring for those people that most people don't care for. By taking on the burdens of people that are different than you, but you happen to be united in Christ, and so now they're your brothers and sisters. By having heartbreak for those who are hurting. So are you making God's grace visible? Let's pray. Our Father, we ask that you would help us in this Topic, Lord, that strikes for every single one of us, Lord. We live, we, the air we breathe in our uh, country, Lord, in the Western world, is one that is just full of the love of money. And we don't even realize how much we've become dependent on that. Open our eyes, Lord, to, to help us to stop thinking about how much we don't have. Always comparing ourselves to those who have more thinking that we would be happier if we could just get a little bit more of this or that. And turn our eyes to not just see all that we do have, but to realize that we have you. And that brings a joy and a delight, and it brings riches that far will outlast everything else. Lord, would you be the driving motivator? Would you be bigger in our heart than all these other things that are clamoring for its attention? So, Father, we ask that you would do this through Christ. Amen.